Acts 4, verses 1 through 31. Um, And as I conclude, um, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you say thanks be to God, because we are thankful for his word this morning. Is everybody there? We good to go? All right. Acts 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priest family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him... This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The king of the earth set themselves and the rules, rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed for the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. 
We're back in the, the vision series again this week, right? week three of a five-week series talking about who we are as a church, where we've come from, and where we're going, and what better place to look for a, a, a roadmap for the church than the book of Acts. And how about praise God for long scripture readings in church? Amen. Like, give it to Adam for powering through that thing, right? All right. Hey, there's one thing we can, that can never be said about Westside, and it's that we don't love the scriptures, right? We know, we, we read from the scriptures a lot, and we, we hear our, the word and the sermon come straight from the text. So this morning, we've got a lot of work to do. But first, I want to catch you up a little bit. What, what, what do we got going on up here? Our three big words, okay? And Jason strapped us to these Gs for these five weeks, okay? So we started off by looking at um, uh, glorify, that the goal of the church as we saw in the early chapters of Acts, is to glorify Jesus. Nobody else, but it's to glorify Jesus. That's the purpose of the church, and that's the purpose of our lives. And secondly, what happens when that takes place? The church grows, right? That's the natural expression of what happens when a community makes great the name of Jesus. So we start to see that the church grows, but remember also a tumor is a growth, right? So all growth is not good growth, but the growth of the church must proceed from health, must proceed from health. Well, today we see the natural expression of good growth. What is that? Opposition, right? Isn't that fun? Good things start taking place, and all of a sudden people start to attack the church. We see this opposition. Um, So I got to fill you in a little bit on what is going on in chapter four. We got to do a little background work. So what we see in chapter four is, is just Peter uh, responding to the Sanhedrin, all the leaders of the temple that he, he's got there, all the chief priests. The chief priest's family shows up. They've got the president, the former president, the president's dad, the president's dad before him, all the, all the important folks that have ever served in the temple are now opposing Peter and John for what's taken place. But... It all flows from something that happened in chapter 3, okay? So Peter and John roll into the temple on the Sabbath. After hearing all that had gone on in the church, they go and go to the appointed time of prayer. And when they show up, they see this lame beggar guy, okay? Lame as in not that he wasn't cool, but he was like, his legs were messed up. He couldn't walk, okay? And he was over, yeah, you got that, right? This guy's over 40 years old. And the text tells us that from his birth, he was this way. And he had a couple friends that were still left, and they took and they put him in front of the temple to hopefully get a little bit of sustenance so he could survive. Well, Peter and John roll up, and the text tells us that the guy's he's looking down, and Peter notices him. One of the only people to actually notice the presence of this human being at the corner of the, of the temple, and he says, look up at us. Look up at me. And when he does, he says, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And he reaches out and grabs his hand. And this guy who hadn't been able to walk his entire life starts leaping and praising God and runs into the temple and starts telling everybody what happened. And what did Peter and John do? They say, cool. No, they immediately said, it's because of Jesus Christ, the one whom you have killed, does this man stand before you hold today. Incredible story, right? And what happens then? The Sadducees show up. They roll in, and they, they throw them in jail because it's kind of late in the day, and they say, we'll hear from you tomorrow. Wonderful. They heal a guy, talk about Jesus, and get thrown in jail. Opposition is the natural response to the growth of the church and to the work of the Holy Spirit. We see that through the text today. So today, the, the vision series, Extraordinary Times, 
It's not just extraordinary times in the book of Acts or, or the, the 60s, what we see in some of the, the birth of Westside and the, the video today, but we ourselves are living in extraordinary times, amen? Have you been paying attention to the news a little bit? Extraordinary times. We ourselves are even experiencing a little bit of this opposition to the name and authority of the rule and reign of Jesus in our own times. So how do we respond to hostility? How do we respond in a world that is hostile to the message of Jesus? That's where we're at today, Right? Fun stuff. <laughs> okay, let's look back at the text. What you often see or you hear spoken about in the book of Acts, in fact, if you flip open to the, the first page of, your, uh, of the, the, chat, the, the book of Acts in your Bible, will say the Acts of the Apostles. That's kind of like the nickname that's been given to, to the book um, over the years. But really, they kind of got that wrong because every time you see the Apostles doing something in the book of Acts, immediately it says, the Spirit did something. The Spirit, and we see here, the Spirit filled Peter, and then he spoke. Or the Spirit swifted somebody off to a different place. Every time the Spirit is involved. So really what we're seeing here in the book of Acts are the acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the predominant figure in the book as the mover of the church who's working through it. Luke, as a matter of fact, talks more about the Holy Spirit in terms of what she does through the disciple than what the disciples are doing or some uh, uh, theological speculation about the, the person of the Holy Spirit. It's what the Holy Spirit does through the people in the church. So that's our first big thing. The gift of the Spirit, as we saw in the chapter here, when the Spirit fills the church, it leads us to be gracious. Gracious, not gracious. I don't know if you've read that. The, the, man, I tell you, when we get all five of these words up here, that's going to be like a spotlight shining out on us. Let's give some of the migraines, right? Especially up here at front. But the gift of the Spirit always leads the church to be gracious, and to be gracious in a few particular ways, in their work, in their words, and in their witness. In the work, in the words, in the witness. The first thing we see here is, is, is in their work. Their work. We remember this, just what I, I filled you in on a little bit from chapter 3, in the work of Peter healing the lame beggar by the gate and restoring him to significance in his community. It always begins with the work the work for the restoration and respect of the marginalized. The work for the restoration and the respect of the marginalized. Remember what Peter said when he saw the, the, the beggar at the gate. Look at me. This guy had been beat down his entire life, had been shoved to the edges of society, had no community on which he could lean on had no place in the temple, couldn't even spend time in the temple because of his condition, was restricted from God because of his condition, because of what the community had placed on him. And what's the first thing Peter does? He raises his eyes. He gives him dignity again. He looks at him and begins at that point to restore him to a place of significance in the community. He raised his eyes. Look at us. And Jesus as well. If you, if you remember a real famous uh, instance of Jesus healing on the Sabbath in Mark chapter 3. He rolls in on the Sabbath into the synagogue, and he knows there's a storm brewing. They're waiting for him to do something scandalous. And there's a man there with a withered hand, and Jesus calls him forward in the front and says, Come here. And he says to the leaders that are around him, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life? Or to kill. Isn't that kind of an interesting way to talk about healing a guy's hand? To save life or to kill? Is it really that serious? If Jesus withholds the healing of this guy, is that really killing him? 
Jesus seems to think so. When we withhold good things from those who have been marginalized around us, is to continue the cycle of death in our society. That's a hard word. That's what got Jesus in trouble on the Sabbath, was extending this grace and healing this guy on a Sabbath in a way that brought life and restoration to him because the system couldn't handle that. The system which had been built around the temple and the people there in power couldn't handle these people being restored to full place in their society. So it's kind of like this this week was 9-11, right? The church is like this. The, The church goes to those in the society that everybody else is running from. As we remember 9-11, we most looked at the the first responders that as these buildings were crumbling down, they kept going in after those who were stuck, those who had no way out. To their own death and peril, they ran into those towers. That's what the church is like, that while everybody else is running away, the church is running in after these people. Gustavo Gutierrez, one of the famous liberation theologians, said it this way, poverty means unjust and premature death. From this arises the reaffirmation of life as the prime human right and a gift from God that we must defend. Poverty in whatever sense, whether that be economic, whether that be social, whether, whatever, brings premature and unjust death. So we see this in, in the, the, the crazy suicide rates in the LGBT community. How do we love them well and go to the margins to where Frankly, it's kind of scandalous to even mention that in church sometimes, is it not? How do we love on the the immigrants' community that are ostracized from the the corners of our society so many times in this unique situation that we find ourselves politically with hard questions that there are not clear answers for? Getting a little uncomfortable, isn't it? Right? That's what happens sometimes when we step into those marginalized corners. But here's the two, two, two problems we have. We, we sometimes want to, to cut off and focus on either just the work, like if I stop the sermon there and say, just go, just, just heal these people and, and fix the cures, the problems in our society. Or if I said, just go and preach the good news. No, it's both and. But we fall into one of two problems, right? And one of my favorite uh, theologians, canon theologian in a, uh, the Anglican Church in North America, Scott McKnight, wrote a book called The Kingdom Conspiracy. And he calls the two sides of this camp, the first one, and here I go, I'm going to make mad every worship pastor in the United States, the skinny jeans camp, okay? The skinny jeans camp. These are the guys who want to, Tyler's raising his hand, right? Aren't there some marvelous skinny jeans? Yeah. I promise that is not a picture of Tyler, okay? This is a stock picture off Google. But this is the camp that wants to prioritize the good works in the world, detached from the preaching of the reign and the rule of Jesus that has implications for our life, okay? So I'm just being, I'm kind of just characterizing and making a joke of these two pants. Scott did. Don't blame it on me, Scott McKnight, okay? Send your, your words to him. So he describes the, the, the skinny jeans camp as good deeds done by good people in the public for the common good, right? These are, when we go dig wells in Africa, that it's a good, wonderful thing, But sometimes we detach that from the preaching of the kingdom of God and the restoration of those people into the right place under the reign and the rule of Jesus. So really what the error is here is cowardice. It's cowardice at proclaiming this reign of a new king that brings the restoration and the justice, right? It's the skinny jeans camp that that, that leans in this direction. 
So if you look at our text, we see that there's a problem with that. That the Sadducees didn't get mad at the, at the apostles just because they were doing something good. I mean, who's really going to get mad that they healed a guy and restored him to life? But it's because of the words that they spoke. It was because of the words that they spoke. And what's really interesting is that it wasn't so much theological, that they, it wasn't so much the theology behind it that they had a problem with, but it was because of the political implications of that theology. See, the Sadducees were unique leaders. I was always taught in church that they were, you know, the Sadducees denied the resurrection as they did, and since then they were sad, you see, right? right? Isn't that, you heard that growing up, right? But it went so much further than that, that the Sadducees also had a special place in Rome with, with the, the occupying nation. They were aristocratic rulers that because of the stances they took politically and because of denying the resurrection, a few of these other things, they were granted special privilege by the Roman authorities. And they knew... This was one of the reasons they killed Jesus. They knew that if all of a sudden there was a community in, in there that was raising up that proclaimed Jesus is king, that means Caesar wasn't. And if they allowed this to grow and to continue on, they were going to lose their economic security and their political stature. So when all of a sudden Peter and John heal this guy and they say, it is because of Jesus Christ whom you crucified who has been raised from the dead, that all of a sudden means that there is someone in the lineage of David who has now beaten death that is now claiming authority over the temple. It was very political, and it was very dangerous. They proclaimed the restoration of kingdom. That means we have no king if we are here proclaiming restoration of kingdom other than Christ Jesus and the way that he calls his church to live into the implications of that kingdom through gracious work, words, and witness. Words. The thing that, they, that made it so scandalous. This is what they preached about. The, the, the proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. This is our second point today. The gift of the Spirit leads the church to be gracious in their words. We see this all through the text, right? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven on which you must be saved. All, all through this text in chapter 3 and chapter 4, and, and the error we fall into here, ready for this? This is a fun one. The pleated pants people, okay? Here's another great one. There you go, right? So what, what Scott McKnight does, he kind of describes this to the older, more conservative uh, folks in the crowd, right, who want to preach, pro proclaim the kingdom of God rightly as they should. But sometimes we cut off the good works from that, the restoration of those who are on the margins. And he says it, says it like this, is that they reduce the gospel to just the atonement or just a personal redemption or they prioritize theological precision at the expense of everything else. So these are our two camps, right? We're either out doing good works or we're out preaching and we've got them separated. I don't have pleated pants or skinny jeans on today. It's, it's both and, right? It's the restoration and at the same time proclaiming this kingdom of God. The error here is callousness. The two errors we fall into is cowardice and callousness. Callousness in the face of the poor and marginalized by Christians who do not respond to human need and injustice. This is not the call of Christ. The call of Christ goes, just like those 9-11 responders, into the places of our society that are most neglected and abandoned and restores them and proclaims the rule of Jesus over those areas, right? This is where the church goes. This is how the church is gracious in our work and our words. 
But look, what I found most interesting is, is how the apostles use their words here. Words to their oppressors. In, in verses 8 through 12, um, he really dives into that. And, and then later on, they push him some more. If you remember in our reading, after they challenged him and, and didn't convince the Sadducees, that they told him to stop and they threatened him. And he said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot stop speaking of what we have seen and heard. I noticed two things in how they, they spoke to their oppressors. The first one is that they were respectful, right? They didn't call them out for being jerks and go home and tweet about it all day, blast them on, on Facebook and call them all these names. They were respectful. They were respectful. They even, if you really looked at the Greek, they used the common Greek forms of rhetoric as you would address a superior in the way they spoke to them. Rulers of the people and elders, they didn't question their authority. They didn't say, you're not my chief priest, right? They, they addressed them respectfully and stuck to the facts. That's the second thing. They stuck to the facts. They stuck to what they knew to be true. Another guy who did this back uh, uh, when Jesus was around, Jesus healed a man, restored him in the same way as the other one, and the, the, the chief priest called him before him in John 9. He says, So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They just stuck to the facts. They didn't try to go in all kinds of tangents and pull in other, other, I mean, we're talking political stuff here. They didn't pull in other political agendas and attack them. They didn't line up a whole list. They stuck to the facts, and they were respectful towards the leaders. We have the same errors, right? We go towards callousness, to where we're not compassionate towards those leaders who are in front of us, or we go to cowardice, and we just we buckle down, and then we run off and, and whine to somebody else about it. And indeed, the apostles did run off to somebody else. Do you notice this? They, 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 the words to their community. Later on in the chapter, the believers pray for boldness. In, in verse 22, when they were released, immediately they ran to their friends. Immediately they ran to their friends. They didn't mull over what to do. They didn't go home and pray. Well, should I tell somebody? About they immediately ran and told their community. And when they did, they stuck to the same priorities. They were respectful and they stuck to the facts. They didn't go home and say, listen to what this cottonhead ninny muggets told me last week. Right? They were respectful even in their words to their community who was supporting them. And we see this through the prayer. Isn't that incredible what they prayed for? They didn't pray that they should be crushed or whatever else, but they went and leaned on their community. I can hear a little bit of tension in this that, that the text doesn't talk about. But we don't hear a big spiel from Peter and what he told his community. That makes me think that he was a little anxious about what happened. If you remember, Jesus was just killed not long ago for speaking up. And what did Peter do? He ran and hid like a little boy, right? Went and hid, as all the apostles did. So I think there's a little bit of anxiousness on the part of the apostles the first time they get bold and they speak up to the authorities in their life. Who do you go to in your time of need? Is there a community that you have been leaning on already that knows your struggle, that when something happens that you can lean on and go to and run to in these times? Because the community's here. Community groups just launched last week. That's one of the purposes of community groups, that we learn to live life together. We learn to lean on each other in these hard times and when we experience oppression or depression or whatever else it must be. 
But many of us, many of us misuse community in two ways. We ignore it or we hit eject. We ignore it until we need it. Life's sailing good. We don't, we don't engage in community group. We don't engage in the church. And then all of a sudden when the marriage hits the rocks or a child becomes sick or whatever else it is, we roll in and, Pastor, I need some counseling right now. Things are bad. It's hitting. I don't know what to do. And we expect that we can microwave these friendships and get them up to speed to extract what we need out of these relationships. That the community doesn't see anything of you until all of a sudden you don't know what to do and you show up and expect some kind of magic bullet. That's not what we see from the apostles. They're engaging with the community and then when the struggle hits, they can lean on it well. Or we live in the community, we walk through the community, we do all the things and then all of a sudden when it gets awkward and Joe over here really makes me mad or says something that I don't agree with or they call me out for, like last week, Jason, what was that, being emotionally mature, right? It gets hard, there gets a little friction, we hit the eject button. And we only roll back in when things get hard again. This is the ways that we misuse community so often. I do it. We all do it. We have to remember that this community God has called us into for a reason, for a purpose of molding us more into Jesus. And it's in this community that we live our life. We lean on this community. But again, when they ran to the community, the apostles, they were still respectful. And they stuck to the facts. They didn't do this, I'm just saying, right? When did that become the, the speech baptizer of anything we said before? I can just say, I'm just saying, and it just it, it throws everything else out of way. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12. Matthew 12. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Oh, every careless word. I've said a lot of careless words to my friends, right? Put a lot of careless words on Facebook. And Jesus says, by every careless word you speak, you will be judged. That's crushing. How are we speaking to, about those in authority? How are we speaking about those who we have friction with to our community? And this doesn't mean we, we hide from the hard things. This just means we, we speak to, about other people as a living creature whom God loves and also died for. This is the, the, way, the words they spoke to, to their community. But what is most incredible to me in this text is what they prayed for. It's what they prayed for. Do you remember this? This is our third point, is that they prayed to be bold in proclaiming the resurrection and rule of Jesus. They were bold in their witness. The third W, words, work, and witness. They didn't go and they didn't pray, God, please take this problem away from me. God, I don't know, they're, they're wrong. God crushed the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees for speaking again. No, they prayed for continue boldness. Is this what we pray for in the midst of suffering sometimes? In the midst of opposition or conflict, do we pray for further boldness or do we pray for it to go away? Because the apostles knew that through these challenges, the church was growing, that they were becoming like Jesus in their words and their work, and that he was doing something incredible in their community, of which they were experiencing opposition. You know, when I, when I, when I read this in boldness and I, and I think about what they were praying for, 
You, you may have used this word boldness, and you may misunderstand it like I do, because when I think about boldness in speech sometimes, I think about, you know, the right words to stand up and tell somebody off or whatever else, and to be strong and to, to crush them with my logic and reason and how right I am in my boldness. But we don't see that being prayed for here. We don't hear that kind of tone in their language. But what we hear is confidence and compassion. Confidence and compassion. That's really what spirit-empowered boldness is. Spirit-empowered boldness is the reassurance of the conviction of this reign and rule of Jesus, that he is resurrected and on the throne. Because I think Peter probably leaning in some of that too. A little bit of angst as to where Jesus is and what he's doing since he doesn't see him around. Is this something that you experience as well, right? Maybe a little bit of, uh, of, of internal conflict as to whether all this is really on track towards what God intended. This is the boldness that the Holy Spirit gives us. It's confidence in those times that Jesus is there and that he's working through our circumstances. And that shows out in our compassion to our words. Spirit-empowered boldness in unusual confidence and compassion in proclaiming the reign and the rule of Jesus. So, I mean, maybe you're not the one who naturally speaks up. Maybe you feel like you don't have the authority for that. But I want to point out something else here in the text in verse 13. What, what, they, what the, the, the Sanhedrin recognized in them, it said they were uneducated common men. Uneducated common men. And the word there, common, actually is the word idiotos in Greek. Isn't that fun? These are just some old hillbillies, some idiots out here running around talking loud. But yet they had a confidence and a compassion and a rhetoric that exceeded anything. And what we really know by this, this is a common Greek phrase. This is, doesn't mean they haven't been to school. This doesn't mean they haven't studied. They just spent three years running around with Jesus in a formal education kind of process to where they're becoming like him. Same thing with Paul. When he comes to the faith, he disappears for a few years and relearns everything that he knew around Jesus because of the implications of that. This isn't saying that we don't pursue education or that we... we disregard people who are experts in a particular field, what this is talking about in the context of the first century in Israel, in, in, in Roman-occupied Jerusalem, is that they hadn't gone through the right political channels, is that these guys hadn't been vetted and spoken with the Sanhedrin. They hadn't okayed everything that they've done over years of process. It's kind of like they hadn't run for office and been elected by the popular vote. They were just common, private folks. In fact, this is how they said it. Uh, the definition for this term is a private man occupying himself with his own things as opposed to a public life having been qualified through political validation. I had been pub uh, qualified through political validation. I don't think many of us have. But yet the boldness of the Spirit says that even in the midst of that, we have something to say. Not us, but the Spirit who has gifted this to us. Common idiotas, right? Out here in the community doing the work and preaching the word of Jesus. This is empowering. That this is the, These are the people that God works through. The common everyday people here in, in our community. And what does it say? They noticed that they had been with Jesus. You know what I hear? It's like he smelled like him. Like he smelled like him. Or you hear it like this. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says this, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. 
among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. This work and the words of Jesus to some smell like the essence of life and a breath of fresh air coming into the life. And others, like the Sanhedrin, it's like death because it's proclaiming that Jesus is king, not them. Uh, in college, I worked my way through college in a, a, a restaurant in Joplin. It was a four-star restaurant. We uh, specialized in Greek food but had all this other stuff. And, and one thing that we would do before the doors opened is we would get a really big hot skillet, and we'd put a bunch of butter in it. And in that butter, we'd throw a big pile of garlic. And we'd get that simmering, and we'd get it smoking, and I'd walk through the restaurant with that smell and that aroma, right? You, some of you know what I'm talking about. You smell that. You walk into Olive Garden or wherever else, you can smell that food, and it sets something off in you, right? And after work, I was sick of smelling like onions and garlic, okay? But I would go around, and I'd go back and talk to my roommates, and someone would be like, man, you smell good. I'm like, oh, I'm sick of this smell. I just want it off of me. But this is what it's talking about is that the work and the words of Jesus kind of just give off this aroma of either life or death, depending on where you are. The Spirit builds the church through common, ordinary idiotas that just happen to smell like Jesus, that are extending to the marginalized and preaching the word of the good wonderful reign of King Jesus in every area. They smell like Jesus. But notice, this is what builds the church. The Spirit's not out here doing these works on his own. Remember what I said originally. The Holy Spirit in Acts is him coming and filling ordinary, uneducated folks and building the church through their work and their witness. Ephesians 4 says it this way. Rather, speaking the truth, speaking, right? We've got to say something. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint in which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, grow, so that it builds itself up in love. And again in Ephesians 2.20, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Spirit. This is the crux of what Peter was preaching, that Jesus is now the chief cornerstone. In verse 11, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. What we understand of this, sometimes it's translated cornerstone. Sometimes in some translations, it's translated keystone. And in looking at it, I think it's more like a keystone. Do you know what a keystone is? I have this first picture. Maybe you've done these where you take the blocks and you try to build the archway, and it's always a struggle. You've got to hold those things up and get that key. But once you've got that keystone in, the thing holds up. The keystone is this. It's the top piece of an arch that the whole weight of everything else leans on, that the whole weight of everything else was designed to incorporate. It's the top piece. It's the keystone. And so I remember this. Um, 
you, you, we're close to St. Louis. You know the Gateway Arch, one of the tallest monuments in the United States? I dug in a little bit to how that was built this week. Check this out. This is it being built. So this is an incredible story about how the Gateway Arch came to be. This actually started back as a, a, an idea in the mid-1930s that the Gateway Arch was first started as an idea. And they had to do incredible work in, in clearing other developments down by the river and, and rerouting trains underground and doing all this stuff. And they started building the edges, and they had to construct these cranes that would actually like ride up the edge of it as the corners were being built up into a point. And then once it got up so tall, this was in 1961 when it first started. Let me just read it. The idea began as early as 33. Construction started in 1963. On October 28, 1965, it was completed. But they got up so far, and the edges, each, each tower couldn't hold the weight, so they had to build the structure underneath to, to kind of brace it up. I think you can see it in the next picture. You can, that's a net. It's just under that that's holding it together. But on October 28th, when it came time to place the keystone, the most central part of this incredible structure, the temperature that morning started off at 40 degrees. And as the sun rose, the temperature started to rise. And as the sun beat on that south leg, it started to make that metal shape and creak and expand and move. And, and things weren't lining up quite right. So they stretched water hoses all the way up the arch to, bl to blow on this side of the, 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 the south leg to keep the temperature in line, to shove this piece in there. They pumped water to help cool them. They were, 40, there was, they were down to 45 minutes left to get it in place and it wasn't quite matching up. So they, they put uh, uh, anchors in there and stretched the arch, put 400 tons of pressure to pull those legs apart to put the keystone in there because they knew that these architects knew what they were doing when they built this thing. And they shoved it apart because the stability of the arch depended on and was designed for the placement of that piece. Here's what they didn't do. They didn't get it up there and say, you know those dang architects down there on the bottom, they didn't know what they were doing. Just give me that cutting torch. I'll shove this. Right? They didn't cut it up and make it fit. They trusted the architect in that that keystone was designed to go there. And if there was something off, that means the arch itself had to shift to adapt to the keystone. What do we do? We're builders. We're not the architect. The shape of the cornerstone didn't fit the temple for the Sadducees, so they got rid of it. How many times has Jesus not fit the shape of your life and you felt like you had to shave Jesus down to get it in there a little bit and misunderstand it as more of a plaque on the corner of the building, an addendum to the life rather than your life trusting on the, the shape of that to fit your life to, that you were designed for and to conform to the reign and the rule of Jesus as opposed to you as a Sadducee making him fit your life. How many times have we done that, whether in our marriage, our relationship, our finances, our communities, how we love those on the margins, how we speak about Jesus in the community, how we speak about those who are in opposition to us, the work and the words and the boldness of the witness of Jesus. How have we leaned away from this? This is why our words, work, and witness so often don't fit. Or they feel awkward. Or they don't come out just right. It's because we're leaning on something else. Whether that be the work, words, and witness of a political party, or our comfort, or our, what we believe will lead us to some vague sense of happiness. 
and we reject everything else that Jesus teaches, and every time we take that cutting torch and we try to shift that, that keystone to make it fit our life. We don't need another Bible study. That's why community groups aren't built around new Bible studies or new books and always chasing after something new, but they're, they're diving into the scriptures and, and looking at ways that we can incorporate what God is saying into our life and to dive that deep. We reject the cornerstone as, as, as the architect of our life and make it a facade plaque. And what the real call is here is that you can't do for someone else what you haven't done for yourself. We're of each of us in so many different ways. Reject the cornerstone. I don't know what that is for you. And the call to obedience this morning is not a call to go out and try harder. Oh, gosh, that's crushing to go out and try to to do these works or to preach these words in a more powerful way, that is a crushing burden. The call to obedience this morning is to pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit to reveal to us where we have done that in our life because it is so subtle. It is so subtle and it is so damaging. The call to obedience is to invite the Spirit in because the Spirit builds His church through the gracious actions of work, words, and witness. What do you need to pray for boldness in this morning? The Spirit may never prompt you to stand up to the most powerful people and systems in our world, but the Spirit is calling you in unique ways to step out in boldness and trust the work, words, and witness of Jesus as your chief cornerstone. Where do you need to pray for that? And secondly, who do you need to speak in gracious boldness to? Maybe this is part of what that means, is to speak up that the kingdom and the reign of rule of Jesus is restorative to someone's life, someone that you have been neglecting speaking to. And then lastly, how are you leaning into your community on both of these questions? This is the challenge and the call to obedience. So with that, we're going to move in and we're going to collectively pray the Lord's Prayer as another anchor of our service of things that we do every week. And through the... The, the classic liturgies of the church, one of the last things they pray for, when they go into the, the, the Lord's Prayer, there's a line that the presider often says. And as our Lord taught us, we are bold to proclaim. The words go. And the community joins in. This Lord's Prayer is one that we realign our life on. That it is a bold prayer. That each statement we look at, that changes our perspective and and acknowledges Jesus as king, that that he sits on the throne. Allow the words of this Lord's Prayer as we recite it to challenge each of those aspects and pray for the Spirit to acknowledge and to to reveal to us where it is that we've, we've moved away. So I believe this is in your bulletin as well if you need assistance with the Lord's Prayer. But as that church, will you pray along with me? And as our Lord taught us, we are bold to proclaim, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. The ultimate sign we see is here at the table. The blood and body of Jesus shed for us. Church, this is the gifts of God for the people of God. Take and feed on Him in your hearts by faith. 